Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. I'm Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Watermark. And I just want to welcome you again. If you're new, this is your first time, see a lot of fresh faces. Thank you for joining us. It's such a delight to have you. And uh, we like to set up coffee with a pastor for anyone who's new. And you just want to ask questions. What do we believe? What are our programs or events? Uh, we, we do that in a heartbeat um, with you. All that's through the website, like, like Ryan said. You know, I got to a uh, quick story, and then we'll jump right into Revelation chapter 3. This last week, I went golfing with my old man. We go once a year for my birthday. And, uh, you know, golf is, you guys know what golf is. Everyone understands. This is a, take that uh, uh, teeny tiny, about an inch uh, in diameter, uh, s- circular sphere. And you just try and scoot that puppy down a field of about 500 yards into a hole in the ground. That's approximately three inches in diameter. Real simple. Super simple, isn't it? No, no, no. It's, it's actually not simple at all. It's needlessly complex, and it's horrible because you just don't know how to win. I mean, what kind of sport are you going to play where you don't know how to be successful? It's so brutal. It's beautiful, and it's brutal. I have here as an object lesson um, the, what's called a driver, and this is kind of the first club that you use to hit the ball off the tee and into that, into that dance with 500 yards of sand traps and water elements and uh, potholes, and it's great. What you're trying to do is, you know, get the ball right in the middle of this thing called a club face. And it's so fun because if you just twist your grip and the club face goes up even a fraction, I'm talking millimeters, people, millimeters, you can just whack that thing a mile high but a foot long. And imagine if you're moving down 500 yards a foot at a time. It's, it's not going to be okay. In golf, you want to have a, a low score, like a minimal strokes with the club. Conversely, you, you put that thing just like edged down a little bit or, or you just move, you hit the ball a, a little bit open like this, that thing is going bye-bye. Um, my goal this last week was to not lose more than four balls. I came in just above that with five balls lost and gone. Golf is a, is a, is a, a gift, but it is uh, needlessly complex and really, really incredibly, insanely hard to know how to win, uh, how to know how to be successful. And I, it's a kind of a funny, silly anecdote, but I think it, it really is descriptive of some of our relationships with God and our walk with our faith. Needlessly complex, strapped down with all these religious burdens that we picked up along the way. Why, how, I don't know, but someone told us that's how you meet God and grow close with God is do all the stuff. And you constantly don't know where you stand with God. I'm two steps forward, one step back. How do I win? How do I be successful in my faith? And you got all these perceptions and misconceptions you picked up along the way. Maybe a bad church experience. Maybe an unhealthy pastor or, you know, a Christian person in your life really brought you down and taught you that this is what it's about. When in actuality, like Revelation chapter 3 says, which we're going to read this morning... It's as simple and as available as an open door. Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 says, I'm standing at the door knocking, and all you have to do is open it. You'll have access to me. 
a love relationship with me. You'll grow and mature. Your faith will flourish. All you need is me. I'm not going to walk through this three-inch little trap in the ground, but a man-sized door, and I'm just going to walk right through. That's the reality, and that's what Scripture supports. Like Ryan said, we're in this teaching series out of the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. The Bible's one book, 66 books. And Revelation was written about 96 AD to a historic group of people who actually once lived and walked on the earth by a historical pastor, a guy named John. And he wrote uh, this letter, he cataloged this through Jesus speaking to him. John, the author, to this church called Laodicea. At the town where a church was, John is the pastor. He's writing on behalf of Jesus, who's giving him this revelation. So you can use your phones, but it's also going to be on the screen. This is from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your deeds. There it goes. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Hence. Because you say, I'm rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Take my advice and buy gold from me, refined by fire, so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so you can be clothed and your, your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. And, and buy eye salve, of all things. Buy eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All those I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with them and he with me. I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on the throne, just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has ears to hear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, like I said, in this part of the book of Revelation, we're today just culminating the seventh letter to seven churches. All these churches resided in what is now modern-day Turkey, And John is a pastor. He's an apostle, but he's also a pastor. He's in exile on a prison island called Patmos. And he's speaking these words. Jesus is speaking those words to John on behalf of the churches. And I want to start with the very first verse 14 and 15. Before we get there, two weeks ago, we talked about the formula that each of these letters follows. These letters written to these seven local churches There was a bit of a formula. It's almost like a performance review at work. I know, the naughty phrase, the scary thing to have a performance review. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities. And and Jesus' letters follow a, a similar pattern. He'll tell the church, you have this great strength. You do the right things. And then he'll go on to say, but your weaknesses, you're doing them with an empty heart. You're doing them without passion. And then he'll say, like it says on the screen, hold on to the end, persevere, persevere, and you will experience life with me forever at my table. And so there's this wonderful flow, you can count on it. But I want to add something. It wasn't just strengths, weaknesses, and then future hope. There's this fourth thing that I've realized now after seven weeks of studying it that's included in every one of the letters. And that's kind of a description 
of Jesus' identity. I wrote in my notes, identity markers. Jesus writes a sentence about himself that we should read into and learn something new about what Jesus says about himself. Now, if you're at all human and you've lived at all a messy kind of life like we all have, then you've come along this pathway of faith, whatever that was, whatever you put your faith in over the years, and you've gotten a distorted view of who Jesus was. Like, just even take sin. When you fail, when you do the wrong thing, what's one of the first thoughts that you have? I, stupid, 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 stupid. I deserve to be punished. And God's going to punish me. He's going to be right there ready to catch me and to punish me. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is God described like that. An angry, impatient, pointer finger God ready to fry you like the bug that you are. He's actually way more, hundredfold more described as long-suffering, patient, full of grace upon grace upon grace. You see the distortion there? We ought to do not what we project onto God. We ought to believe not what we project as God's identity. Let's use what Jesus says about God's identity as our marker for understanding and experiencing him, right? Does that sound like a better plan? Let's not put our projections on him. Let's put his projections on him. And so the very first thing is the name that Jesus uses. And this is what he says about himself. This is the solemn pronouncement of, it's like first person. So I, Ben, Ben says this. Okay, but I don't have the right to do that because I'm a sinner. But Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I, Jesus, am the originator of God's creation. So the first thing he says about himself is that he's the amen. Do we have any amen fans out there? I just want to cover this really quickly. Um, amen, amen. Are we split? To, uh, there's some, probably some classical people out there who just raised on amen. And that's okay. Keep doing amen. Regardless of whether you're an amener or an amener. Today, how wonderful is this? We're going to learn what the word means. The word that you've been using for years around the dinner table and around the holidays. And you didn't know really fully what it meant. You're going to figure it out right now. Right now, I'm going to help you figure it out, what that word means. When you conclude a prayer and you say, thank you, Jesus, for this food. Blessed are our bodies in Jesus' name. Amen. Like we used to pray as kids around the dinner table. Dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Blessed are our bodies. Amen. Just flippantly, we throw the word around. Today, I'll tell you, it's not going to take much time, but amen. It's wonderful. Amen in Hebrew thought. So this goes way back. You know, that word was used way before the Greek New Testament. Amen or amen, if you will. And Hebrew thought was an acknowledgement. It was an acknowledgement of something as valid, binding, or final. To say amen is to say this is valid. This I believe. This is a binding contract. This is the final word. Now, it's not just a prayer formula. Now, combine it with what's on the screen right now. Jesus is that amen. Amen is Jesus, and Jesus is amen. They're interchangeable. So when you pray that, can you pray with a new way now? When you pray and you say amen, and you're saying Jesus, I say Jesus' name. This is a binding agreement with you, Lord, but I've just finished praying. You're the foundation. So I make this deal with you, God. You are final, Jesus. That'll change the way we pray, I think, too. His second name, Jesus, uses for himself is the true witness. Now, the Greek word true can mean either true versus false or counterfeit versus genuine. And the latter definition is how Jesus is using it. 
He's not saying true, false. He's saying genuine versus counterfeit. And that's Jesus describing himself as authentic, the genuine article. You know, I was thinking about this. It just hit me like a load of bricks when I was reading this verse that's on the screen right now. Do we know, how often do we remember that Jesus represents God? Let that sit and just for a second, just sit on that. That Jesus represents God. That Jesus is not just representative, but he's the actual human manifestation of God. God were to come down to the earth and put flesh and bones on, it would be Jesus. Like when we see Jesus, when we read his words, when we watch his actions, we're seeing and watching and hearing the Father. And the Gospel of John says exactly this. If you want to go back and you want to get in touch with this Jesus, the earthly manifestation of God in heaven, the creator God of the universe, if he's feeling so distant to you, if God is feeling too unknowable, who can really know God? Who can understand his ways? Who can get in touch with him? Go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and get in touch with a biographical picture of Jesus. He is the revelation, the ultimate revelation of God. John chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 14 says this over and over again. Jesus would say, Jesus, this is Jesus' words. Those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. Not my idea. This is, this is written all over Scripture. Think about that. Just let that mess you up a little bit this week. When we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus represents God. And that will help you practically every day. In a world, living in a world that will tell you you can't know the truth, there's no such thing as objective truth, right? Just you do you. As long as you do you, you'll be all right. Do whatever you think in your, in your worldview, in your paradigm, and you know, that's probably enough to save you. There's no way you can know objective truth. It's just subjective. Every person does what's right in their own eyes, and that's, they're hoping for the best. With Jesus being the, the amen, Jesus being the, the one true witness, that's the same thing as saying you can know truth. You can know God. He is the objective truth. When the whole world tells us there's a hundred different truths, he is the truth. He's the authentic, genuine article. Finally, Jesus describes himself as the originator. Now, what's that about? It's kind of interesting. He part of the region where Laodicea, this church that we're studying, part of the region that it belonged to was called like the, 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 the sister cities. The, the three cities in surrounding area were Laodicea, Heropolis and Colossae. That last one may sound familiar to you because Paul wrote the book of Colossians. Colossae, that's the city. He wrote the letter to them, the church there called Colossians. And he would say things like this in the book of Colossians. He'd say, um, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Do you see that? The one true witness. But he's also the originator. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. So this is, gets pretty heady pretty quick and pretty mysterious pretty quick. But we believe from, from the book of Genesis uh, and all the other books that Jesus was coexistent with the Father. The Trinity, you've heard this before, probably even if you've been to church one time, that there was Christ the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And they're coexistent. They have to be. They're co-eternal, co-existent. And, and from that triune community, the world was created. 
That Jesus was there, right? He wasn't just this human being, this great prophet, this great Messiah in the, in the, you know, the first century. He was there at the beginning of everything. So we can read Colossians, we can read Paul and make way more sense of it, can't we? Jesus was there at the beginning. You know why else? And this should really matter to you. Why else this matters for us? Is Jesus as originator? He's the re- originator of our biology. So that's like when we say Jesus was there at the beginning of creation, that's like earth science, is it not? The earth sciences support a creator. An intelligent design. Today, the best scientists can still wrestle and say, oh, maybe it was a flash, maybe it was a bang, maybe it was gases, maybe it was you know, this and that. There's, there's no answer that satisfies like, no, there's a being outside of this realm who breathed it into existence. And Jesus was there breathing it into existence. That's an earth science point. I love how science reinforces scripture and scripture reinforces science. Whatever you believe today, this is what you should know about Jesus as originator. You came from him. The first breath you breathed, he breathed life into you, into your biological person. He cares about your bodies, even your bodies. He is God and sovereign over your bodies. He's the originator of everything. He is the first. He is the preeminent. He is the amen. He is the one true witness. He's also the originator. Is that a refreshed version of like what Jesus said about, says about Jesus? Not our poor, half-hearted, kind of halfway misconceptions about Jesus. That's what Jesus says about Jesus. Remember that this week. That will impact everything you do and everything you think. It will reframe everything you know about Jesus. So that's the very first verse. That's just verse 14. Let's move on to verse 15. It says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Wow, what a vulgar, graphic picture, no? That's the big idea. That's the, well, that's the second to biggest idea for this morning is this word, lukewarm. Say it with me. Lukewarm. You said it like you're lukewarm. Come on, I'm trying to set you up for success here. Say, lukewarm. Good job. You're on fire. I can feel the fire coming off of you. The single word that carries the entire section, this whole sentence is that word, lukewarm. This was that church's weakness, their opportunity. If you had your performance review and it said, here's your opportunity, and you're like, just just say it's a weakness. We all know it's a weakness. This is their opportunity. This is their weakness. This is their rebuke. And it was Laodicea's, and it's ours. Because we've seen that again and again and again. Seven churches, 2,000 years old, every one of them speaks to us today. It was their weakness, and it's ours too. So the very first thing I want to say is a disclaimer. For decades, this passage has been taught wrong. For decades, people have taught it basically in the following way. That Jesus is saying, I wish you were on fire for me or dispassionate for me. Now let me just stop. What kind of sense does that make? (laughs) For a God that wants relationship with his children? Why on earth would he change the narrative of the entire Bible and then all of a sudden say, I just really wish you'd make up your mind. And if you want to be cold on me and you just want to end your relationship with me, I wish you would do that already. A God who loves his children, wants a relationship with him? How can that logically flow from what God's already said about his beloved children? There's no way he's saying, I wish you were on fire or I wish that you would just be ice cold and stop following me. That's not what the verse says or means. But we taught it that way a long, a long time. That Jesus would somehow prefer that we would just be dispassionate or that we'd be on fire. That, that doesn't make any sense. 
Why would Jesus say that? He wouldn't. He wouldn't say that because he's for us. How do I know he's for us? Even in the most stern part of his rebuke, what follows after? Verse 19, all of those I love, I rebuke and I discipline them. So be earnest and repent. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves and he counts those he disciplines as his sons and daughters. The Bible talks about illegitimate children who are not disciplined by their father. That's a contextual view of discipline. If God's going to bring tough words, you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out. It's in the cushion of I love you and I rebuke you because I love you. I want so much more for you than this world has to offer. You've tried the world's way. How's it going for you? So there's no way it could be taught that other way. I just wish you'd stop following me because he's for us. He is 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 for you. He is for you. He is for you. So it can't be a verse that says, I just wish you'd stop now because you're doing a bad job of it or an average lukewarm job about it. That's what it's not, okay? We've got to start there. That is what it's not. What is it, actually? Well, we've already learned that this is seven specific churches, seven specific people in a very specific time and place. And, and, and I love um, geological science. You know, they're still doing digs all over the Mideast, Iraq, Turkey, Israel. And they do these digs and they find out these confirming scientific facts about the communities 2,000 years ago. It's profound. All the time they're confirming these things. And what they know about Laodicea is here was a town that had two different types of water. What kind of water did they have? Can you guys guess what kind of water they had? From the verse? That's on the previous screen. Let's just go back. Let's just, I'll just put it up there really quick just to cheat mode for you guys. We're going to go to cheat mode real quick. And I don't know if this thing wants to go. And I don't, I don't, What kind of two types of water they had? What did they have? Well done. Give you guys a little golf clap. Let's just do a golf clap here. You've got to keep it down on the golf course. You never walk in front of someone's path of swing. That's a rule. And they never talk in someone's backstroke. So you guys are ready to play golf this week. Congratulations. Golf clap for you. There's two types of water there in Laodicea. Hot springs, naturally occurring hot springs, which had their own medicinal purposes for healing and for refreshment. And there were, you guessed it, cold springs. Waters that were cold and cool and refreshing and healing in their own way. Two types of good water. Two types of water that have their own uses and applications. That is the specific town that's getting this note. But lukewarm, in the middle, if there was a water that ran through town in Laodicea and it was lukewarm, it was probably poisonous. It had to be hot, hot enough to cook the bad stuff, or cold, clean, and natural. If it was in the middle, it's poisonous. The same thing applies in our faith, doesn't it? We're one, faith, one foot in, one foot out, we're undecided, bad. Bad. That's the place you don't want to be, Jesus is saying. Lukewarm, bad. Well, okay, Ben, cool. That's so exceptional that the pastor is calling us bad. Congratulations. Bad. Oh, we're bad for being lukewarm. Got it. Okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. In our house, we don't you know, tell the kids they're bad. You, don't, you can't use that language, right? Because that's like an identity marker for the kids. Uh, but they learned it anyway from watching a movie, uh, a movie. I think it was a movie with like dogs or pets. So they run around the house like, bad girl, to each other, to their siblings. Bad girl, bad boy. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like, those are children of God. Like, we don't call each other. Okay, so I won't call you bad either. Let's use a different word. Let's be more creative. Lukewarm. How about lukewarm? Ineffective. Let that sit for a second. Gosh, is that a telling word? 
um, one of my prayers for today's message is that we would all leave this room today and that we'd actually, I know maybe it seems kind of dark and kind of messed up, but I, I honestly pray that all of us would be haunted by that word and that it would keep us awake at night, thinking about our lives or our faith being ineffective. Let's, let's, let's wrap even more practical terms around it. I want to ask you a question. What would you knowingly pay for that was ineffective? Would you pray, would you pay, would you pay for a product or service that you knew was ineffective? No, 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 no. Not for a minute, let alone a repeat. <laughs> you never would, we never would. Well, what habit, trait, or, or lifestyle pattern would you continue if you knew it was ineffective? You, you wouldn't. You'd, you'd do whatever you could to grow and change and to replace that habit with a new habit that works, that serves you, that serves God's purposes in your life. It's the same thing in our faith. Why would we continue? Jesus knows. Guys, this is the beautiful thing about lukewarm. And this is how we know he loves us when he says, beware of being lukewarm. It's not just for his benefit. Does he need us to wax his ego? Does God, does Jesus need us to wax his ego? No, man, he's God. He has feelings, but he doesn't need us to wax his ego. That's not why he created human beings and put them on the planet. He wants relationship. But more than that, he knows that lukewarm nature doesn't serve us. It doesn't help us. It doesn't bless us. It doesn't help us live the life that, that, that John talked about in John 10.10, 10, that Jesus talked about living life and life to the full. There's no full life being lukewarm. It's ineffective. It's the same thing in our faith. My wife and I were reflecting on this, this, this book that inspired this teaching series. It's called Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson. And as we are culminating the seventh letter to the seventh church, we're just thinking back, what's the big idea we've heard? Like, what's the concurrent, the reoccurring, rather, the reoccurring theme that's the same for all seven churches? Wouldn't you want to know that? If, there was, if, if Jesus said one thing about all seven, wouldn't you want to pick up on that? If there was one consistent reoccurring theme through all seven churches, you'd want to know, right? And the seventh church just hits it right again, and it's this, this idea of zeal versus lethargy, being lethargical, Versus this zeal and passion. Let's take a sampling from three of them. All of them had this, but three of them that were the most extreme. One church, Jesus said, you've lost your first love. You guys remember what that was like? Most of us in the room were grown-ups, you know? When you're dating, you're infatuated. Just infatuated, man. And Jesus says, you know, yeah, I want a deep abiding love relationship with you. With, with you. That's what I want, but I'd take, a, I'd take some infatuation right now because of the way you're rejecting me. To another church, he said, your works are empty. I see your works. You can still do the church religious things that look good on the service, but you're doing them with such an empty heart. Your heart's not in it anymore. And then to another church, he said, you look alive. You're generating a lot of noise. You look alive, but on the inside, you're, you're dead. That was another tough rebuke Jesus gave to one church. No vitality in you. There's no zeal. There's no passion. There's no fidelity. That's the big idea for all seven churches. And it culminates here with Laodicea. Don't be lukewarm. Open the door and experience a life on fire for me, with me, and in your actual daily life. Wherever you live, work, and play. It can be different. There's more to be had. The weight of God's displeasure with this lukewarm thing is really driven home in, in verse 16. A lot of your translations might say, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Hollywood, 
There's so many Hollywood movies, they love to quote this verse uh, uh, to be dramatic and to bring a, a weight about God's judgment. And of course, they use this verse and nothing else from Scripture to contextualize who God really is. But the version that says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, is incorrect. The tightest, most exact way to translate the Greek word is vomit, vomit, vomit. Now, why did I just repeat that so many times? Why am I camping out on this word vomit? Because it's the thrust for how Jesus feels. It is the descriptor for how it makes Jesus feel. That he's got like a guttural sickness. That he wants to eject us out of his mouth. That kind of visceral graphic imagery. Here's another thought exercise for you. I just want you to try this right now and then maybe throughout this week. You ever think about how Jesus feels? Think about how Jesus feels. Does Jesus feel? Remember our favorite verse to memorize when we were in Sunday school? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. (laughs) So many examples that Jesus was a real human being fully God and fully man. But we tend to emphasize the fully God one so much we forget he was a human being with feelings. And now that we know, even though he's in his resurrected body now, he still feels. I think that's helpful for us and our relationship to, to humanize Jesus every now and then and say, how does it make Jesus feel when we give him our pennies? How does it make Jesus feel when we give him our our leftovers of our 24 hours? You know, few things have uh, broken me, like raising children. (laughs) As a person, as an individual, like like as as a man, nothing has broken me. My will, my ego, my selfishness, my flesh, which is all those things I just mentioned, like raising young children. I mean, it's a gift. It is a gift to raise kids. It's an invitation to grow and mature. I've said several times from this pulpit that uh, I'm like a toddler on the inside, just, just banging at the walls to get out. I'm just, I am. I'm kind of like an emotional adolescent in a lot of ways, still in my life. But I graduated from, from emotional infant, y'all. Okay, I started an emotional infant, and now I graduated to emotional adolescent. And that's not bad. And I think the primary mechanism that God used to show me that was raising kids. You guys who have raised them, I can see some of you who have, they're, they're, they're grown and gone, you know what I'm talking about. They'll break you. Even as adult kids, they'll break you. Nothing has broken my heart like when my boys, like my seven-year-old shepherd or my, or my five-year-old crew, at the end of a really long night and a really bad bedtime routine, fighting back tears, just look in my eyes and say, Dad, you know, you're, I think you're being too hard on us. You're just being a little bit too harsh, Dad. I'll never forget the last time Shep said that to me. You know, by the way, like he's he's wild. I mean, he's as wild as a bag of spider monkeys. Like you take that, you open that can up, and, and they're bouncing off the walls. This is the same kid I found, four year old, four years old, like walking on the roof. Like, no, not not just like a balcony, but like on the shingles, walking on the roof. Okay, so he, he's wild and he's extreme and he's hyper and I know one day these things will be gifts. I know they will. 
But he's, he's also got like this sweet side and this, this sensitive side. And he's so soft-hearted. I never want to crush that soft-heartedness in him. He's the same kid, like, even as a boy who asked for a kiss at bedtime, you know? Like, right on the lips. You know, right on the mouth. You better believe I'm kissing him. Right on the mouth, man. Because one day he's going to grow out of that. And he's going to kind of maybe not want anything to do with me. So you bet I'm kissing him right on the mouth. But it breaks my heart. Like, I'll never forget that day that I was too hard on him. It's enough to break your heart, isn't it? Like Jesus feels, as as our Father, He feels. His heart breaks. I think some of the things that you know break His heart. What breaks God's heart? I think our casual nature, our casual inquiry. One day we'll go to Him for questions. One day we go to Him for prayers. We're looking at Him like a slot machine of prayer requests. And sometimes he answers, sometimes he doesn't. And then we go away for a time. The other 29 days out of the month, and then we come back again. It's casual, we're in, we're out. Our fickle hearts. Well, I gave Jesus my life when I said yes to him, and I was saved. But that doesn't really help me during my nine to five. There are other things that I'm hooking my heart onto. There are other things that have my heart around their finger. And those are the things where I'm going to 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 soothe me or to encourage me or to help me get through the day. Our one day a week Christianity. I've said this once, I'll say it again. We're losing the battle of ideas. If we're spending 10 hours a day, and that's a real statistic, 10 hours a day hooked on news and social media, hooked on video games, hooked on YouTube, hooked on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is, 10 hours a day, and that's a real number, and we're getting three hours a week on God or the things of God, whether it be a sermon or whether it be Bible time or whether it be a message, whatever it is, who is winning and losing that battle 10 hours to three days? Guys, we have got to grow up and into the fullness of what Christ has for us. The one day a week or three hours a week will not mature us into the person Jesus is calling us into. And remember, I know my, when I come, it comes out of this pie hole of mine, I know it sounds tough. And we got to do it. And you must do it. I know I'm like scolding father, even up here. I get that. But just remember, Jesus' heart for maturity is so you can win the game too. You can know the rules of this life and you can feel successful because you're walking with him with 100% of your heart, not just one day a week, but 24-7, 365. You will know how to win. It's not a trick like golf. It's not a sabotage like golf. You can know how to win in your relationship with God. That's what he wants for you. Not just what he gets or what you must do. It's not about a religious obligation. It's about life and life to the full. And anything short, it does break God's heart. Guys, is he feeling because of ego? Or is he feeling because his children don't know what fullness is? Are you tracking with me? What's breaking his heart is not that you're bad children. What's breaking his heart is not that we're bad children. It's that his children could have so much more. And he knows it. When I say more, by the way, I hope you're tracking with me. I'm not talking about material possession, okay? Understand? We're not a prosperity gospel church. But you can have more in your relationships. You can have more in your maturity. You can have more in your understanding. You can have more gifting. 
More time to use to serve and bless and heal people. That's the kind of more that mourns and grieves Jesus' heart because we're settling for so much less a sliver. I'm going to keep going, sorry. If, if someone told you you could have Apple stock in 1989, what would you do? Would you take 1% or would you spend everything from the bank to get Apple stock in 1989? Would you spend everything? What's the answer? Everything. Because the ROI would be that much more. There's no ROI like giving Christ your whole heart, not 1%, but you can bank on him, and you're going to get life and life to the full. It's the best investment of your time, of your energy, of your mind space, of ideas, ever. It will serve you and bless you, and Jesus knows that, and that's why his heart is broken. There are three specific things. See if we can do this really fast. Taking all the time talking about Apple. (laughs) What am I doing, Adrian? What's going on, man? Um, three things. Here they are. Okay? This is good for us because we're at a church in Orange County and this is good for us. Jesus says there's three things that have pulled you down into lukewarmness. You say, Jesus says about the Laodicean Christians, you say you're rich and you've acquired wealth and need nothing, but you don't realize you're wretched. Blah, 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 blah. 18, take my advice and buy gold from me. Gold. Buy from me white clothing too so you can be clothed and not shamefully naked. And buy eye salve. So there's three things that are going on in this time and place. Very specific things happening for this group of people in Laodicea. Number one, they're money obsessed. They're so proud of themselves for their bags. Just bags of gold. Everyone say bags. Bags. Next time you're talking about money, you're just going to say bags. Like, hey man, how much are you making this year? How many bags? And just say bags, okay? Do me a favor and just say bags next time. You're talking about someone's pay increase they got. Just say bags. You're going to feel so much better about it. You may feel like a hip-hop star, but it doesn't matter. It's going to give you joy, and that's, in, and that's important too. God wants you to have joy. So the first thing is they're obsessed with money. This is a true story. At that time and place, the year 96, plus or minus, they had a, they had a, a catastrophic event. I don't remember if it was a fire or an earthquake or what it was. And the other towns, in compassion, went to Laodicea and said, hey guys, let us help you. We'll give you a loan or we'll put you on a sweet repayment plan. And they're like, no, we got bags. No, thank you. That's what they said to the, to the generous donors who were going to help them out. No, we're going to pay for it all out of our own gold. And they did. Number two, your fine linens. They were known, Laodicea was known about their, their, their garment industry. Their fine linens. They were world renowned for it. And number three, I salve. It's kind of like pharmaceuticals. Like that's what I would say. Early, early times. The first century is very early to have a med school, but Laodicea was kind of known for their, their earliest scholars of the natural world and remedies and, and kind of early, early, early medicine. And they were known for outsourcing this salve, like a doughy salve that you put on your eyelids to help you with your vision. Now, I had a really good kind of back and forth with one of our former elders, and he's a, he's a, a, a surgical doctor and like a volunteer theologian in his free time. Amazing, man. And we were going back and forth. Does, ben, does Jesus mean like spiritual blindness? Or is he talking about a biological issue? My, my answer, and I leave this up to you, and you can see what the Holy Spirit does, but I, I think it's both. I think it's really and truly both. I think he's talking about spiritual blindness. Wake up. I'll give you vision to see things. Even if you're truly functionally blind, I will give you vision to see something that you've never known before. I also think that he's making a very specific biological message to a people in a place. Do you think God or Jesus has something to say about our bodies? There's a lot of scripture talking about our bodies as vessels 
The Bible talks about our bodies as temples. I think Jesus cares a lot about these, these vessels that do soul work. You know, if, if your temple, if your vessel crashes, can you do soul work anymore? On this, on this earth at least? If it goes down, can you do the work of the soul and the work of the spiritual realm? You can't. You need a tent, Paul says, a tent, a vessel to do that soul work. I think the Bible has something to say about biological issues. And I think our time and place, when you read this, okay, you see the thing about bags, you see the thing about clothes, you see the thing about pharmaceuticals. Uh, Orange County, anyone? Anyone hearing or reading into the text? Orange County? Or really any other major city in, in the United States or the world? If you're not, you should be. Is this a relevant letter for us today? This is a relevant letter for us today because the hearts of the Laodiceans were lukewarm. They're being dragged down from that be hot or be refreshingly cold and they're getting dragged down to that messy, messy, lukewarm middle because of these three things that are the consumer gods of their time. What do these things scream? Like when you got the money and you got the clothes and you got the the medicine and you got all the stuff to fix you up just perfectly, what what do they scream? What are we screaming at? We're screaming, we don't need you, God. Look what we did. These consumer gods that we get hooked on, that's just what it does to the heart. We're not going to come into your, church, your, your closet as pastors and, and critique you and shame you for your favorite shirt or your favorite shoes or whatever else it is. It's not what it's about. It's about your heart. And how these consumer gods draw your heart into this lukewarm nature. And your heart eventually says, look at all the stuff that keeps me cozy at night. I did that. You know when the oldest, oldest, most ancient sins of mankind was after Adam and Eve? It was Babel. Because the people in Babel had figured out the, the, the first ever awesome technology. What was that technology? Bricks. They found Bricks. And they thought, let's build a tower all the way up to heaven so we can what? So we can say, look what we did. Look at us. There are some authors who say the same thing about modern day cities. A city, yeah, and it doesn't feel like a metro area in Orange County, but it's a city nonetheless. The city screams, look what we've done. Look at us. I think cities, okay, does that make people feel like God? Does it, make, does it make people feel like God? That's what that's, when you scream, look what we did, look what I did, you're, you're playing God, right? God becomes, itty bitty, I don't need God, I don't need God, look what we did. So our stuff gets bigger and God gets so much tinier. I don't know if cities is the best argument, but the one thing I think really has made us beat our chest is like Google, right? <laughs> I'll never forget the conversation I had with a guy, we worked in the restaurant together, we were servers together. And he was culturally Jewish, kind of raised in a Jewish family, but didn't really have any faith as a young adult. And we had these text message conversations, these God conversations. And I sent him something like, man, what do you think about this? Don't you think this is like God's all in this? And he was like, Ben, to tell you the truth, um, what is the use of God now that we have the internet? I could cite all kinds of stats on the internet. Like it's a tool and we need it and we're going to use it until Jesus comes back. I mean, we've got to have the internet and we're going to use the internet. But in terms of the internet being God, I just want to ask, like, instead of giving you statistics about this, you could just even look in your own heart right now. Just look in your own heart, and I'm just going to ask you. This would be more powerful than any statistics. Because of the internet, in light of the internet, have you been made to feel more safe? Any WebMD fans out there? 
You feel more safe and secure because you went on WebMD and it told you you're going to die next week? You're feeling much better, right? Yeah, safe and secure. The internet really blessed me today. Are you feeling more at peace? Because of which you, because you're feeling, are you feeling calmer? Are you feeling calmer and more at peace because of the 10 hours you spent on the screen today? Are you feeling calmer and more at peace? You're feeling just chilled out, right? Just chilled out. No. After those 10 hours, are you feeling more purposeful? You're feeling more purposeful, right? I'm ready to take the world, man. I am not exhausted by the last 10 hours I spent investing in other people's problems. I'm great. I'm ready to go. No, I don't need to cite stats because you all can do what I've done when I've spent too much time on technology and internet. And you know how it makes you feel. You know how it leaves you. So whatever the thing is, stuff, which is on the screen, or the things we build to make us feel like little gods ourselves, the result is the same. Our relationship and our walk with the Father becomes more and more and more lukewarm. And it loses its healing potential of being hot, healing waters or being cold, soothing, refreshing waters. I want to say this is the last thing. As the band comes up, this is the last thing I want to share. Cool, Ben. <laughs> this is a challenging message about being lukewarm. What do we do to fix it? Now, if you're like me and you're one of those to-do list Christians and you want an action item, here it is. It's the best and most beautiful one I've ever written down because it's simply this. Open the door. That's it. That's the final word. Open the door. That is your action item. Verse 20, listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. There's no spiritual to-do list for you today. There's no religious activity that earns you more access to Jesus. There's no super convoluted, complex, putting green hole that you have to just trial by fire get into. It's a man-sized doorway that he's knocking. There's no mystery or confusion about what that noise is. It's Jesus knocking at the door of your heart saying, all you have to do is open it and you'll get greater access to me and you'll learn more about this life to live to the full. But here's something so challenging because a lot of you have heard that message before. A lot of you have seen that application of the open door. Oh, that's great, Ben. I'm already a believer. And I remember, um, you know, the famous evangelist, the Billy Grahams, who used to use that verse all the time. Just open the door, and now you're a believer. That's good. But what about the doors to the other compartments of the house that are still closed off to Jesus and access to Jesus? Daryl Johnson puts this so clearly and so simply. We'll end with this. He says, you may have opened the front door of the house and let him in the living room, but the other doors to other rooms have not been opened stands before each of them and knocks. The amen and RK, that is the, the beginning and the end, Jesus will never be satisfied until he has access to every room. But get this, neither will we. For all the rooms were made for him, originator. Only he can make all the other rooms what they were made to be. He's moving through the house, knocking at every door. And the question to us this morning is, will you open them? Will you open them? Now I want to share just two more minutes of my personal story. I was born and raised a Christian. I had opened the first door to have a relationship with Jesus in my heart, but it was about seven years ago that I felt this penetrating conviction that I was still holding back compartments or doors to my heart from Jesus. And there was one specific area, which was alcohol. 
Now, you can hear me here, you know, my whole life, probably never been drunk. There's no horror stories or dramatic events or bottle breaking or fights or brawls or, or anything when it comes to alcohol and my relationship with it. But seven years ago, I was at a Christian conference, and I'll never forget it. The guy was up there making an announcement about how God wants your whole heart. And he didn't even say this, but in my head, I got a picture of a pie. And it was so clear to me that Jesus was saying, yeah, Ben, I have that one sliver, but I want the other parts back too. I won't just settle for one portion or one cut or one slice of the pie. I want the whole thing. And it pierced me to my soul that I was using this stuff, yeah, to relax, to de-stress, but I was using it nonetheless to fill a void that only God could fill. And that day I made an amen sort of prayer, a pact, a finality, an agreement with God. I said, okay, Jesus, I hear you now loud and clear that this is what you're calling for. And I'm going to say yes, I'm going to meet you there. That you need to help me. You need to take the thirst from me. You need to take the, the fun of it. It's fun. And you need to help me by just removing that. And I'm telling you guys, in seven years, I haven't looked back. It hasn't even been a glimpse or a glimmer. It's like, it's gone. He helped me. He asked for this thing, which was more of my heart, to be tied around his finger. He opened the next door, not just the first one, but the second one. And now he's since then opened the third one and the fourth one. And there's so many more to open. It's just fun now. It's like fun for him to take new ground because I'm growing in maturity. And I thank you, Jesus, for your grace to do that in and through me for you right now. Have you opened all of those compartments? Does Jesus have access to every one of those doors in your heart? Does he have the whole pie? I want to give you a chance right now during communion, during this last song, to pray. And take communion. You're free to get up whenever you want and just pray and just, God, what do you want? Take it back. And pray that prayer. And I'm going to start that prayer right now. Jesus, thank you so much that you are the amen. You are the final word. God, you are the true witness. You actually reveal God to us. And you're the originator. Everything we have comes from you. God, I pray that you would reclaim territory right now. This morning would be a defining moment decision for people in the room. The person in the room who's holding back. You have 99, but there's 1% that they're holding back from you. Let, them, let us just put it at the stage. Put it at the altar. Leave it at the altar right here, right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.